are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One. You know, I say this every week. I say it every week for the last few weeks, and I'm sorry. But every week it hits a new level of, of dumbness, and that is the election. People running for president. This last week, Donald Trump. Picked up uh, New York. He won in New York. And former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton won big in New York as well. So I don't want to spend any time on that per se, but I do want to talk about, because I think it's connected, the the distrust we have in what we see, what we hear, the distrust in the media in general. Uh, There's a recent poll put out this last week that only 6% of the people surveyed say they trust the media. 6% trust the media. And and I got to looking at this and thinking about it, and too much of the media now, the journalists, if you want to call them that, uh, are more interested in, in initiating and being part of social change than they are in objectively reporting the facts. They tend to go into things with a preconceived conclusion. And we've seen that in several instances. I mean, the Rathergate, you know, the the thing around Dan Rather a year or so ago or a few years ago, uh, the Rolling Stone story claiming that freshman girl was gang raped uh, during a house party, you know, just, just over and over and over different different uh different stories that just turned out not to be true and you know it destroys people's lives one thing i mean the rape uh accusations and stuff can destroy a person's life but more importantly it it takes away from the ability of you and i to trust what we read and what we hear there there are several traditional journalistic principles and and, you know it's it's accuracy it's balance it's fairness and what happens with instant media today is somebody puts something out there either a tweet or a facebook posting or a blog and the media the the massive media the mainstream media if we want to call it that want to be first they want to be first, so they take it at face value. They, they believe it. Nobody does any digging for the facts, especially if they agree with the conclusion of what they're reading. So if, if somebody says they were raped, well, that's terrible. Why question it? Nobody would lie about that. We can't, we can't question it. We can't 
accuse the alleged victim of not telling the truth, regardless of counter-testimony. We just don't trust the media anymore. And then the truth eventually comes out, and the retraction is on page 17. The, tra- the retraction is, is minor. It's, um, you know, kind of an afterthought. Oh, gee, wow, shoot, we got that wrong. Sorry. Whatever. Let's move on. Um, the most important thing for, for news today can be, uh, should be, accuracy. And sometimes being first is not the best case. It's better to be right. And when I look at the candidates, I mean, the, the media has gotten to be pretty much the, the epitome of propaganda. And it's up to us to sort it out. We have to go find the, the truth. And a lot of us don't take the time to do that. We don't have the time to do that. So it's become a, a propaganda tool, and I think that's why we don't trust it. But you look at the candidates. You look at the candidates, every word they say is given to them based on focus groups, based on expert consultants telling them what words to say. I'll pick on Donald Trump. Donald Trump's slogan is, make America great again. Now, what does that imply to you emotionally? One, America was great at one time, and it's not great now. It also implies that by electing him, he will make America great, or simply by electing him, America will be greater. I've seen Secretary of uh, State Clinton's uh, slogan. I saw one yesterday that said, I'm with her. I'm with her. So it personalizes it down to an individual level, and it's giving us a message of a female president. Now, I'm not going to dispute either side of this. I'm not going to argue about it because I'm not an expert in that. But I am an expert in my own mind anyway of determining what I think is true and what isn't. Notice when, when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton does a speech and it's broadcast on TV or on the Internet, something like that, she always points to someone in the audience and waves and, make a, and makes a gesture makes a facial gesture that that person is a good friend and and I know that person. Every time, every time. To me, I see an insincerity. But the person might be looking at that and saying, oh, she's connecting. She's connecting with the audience. And every word they say Every phrase they utter is based on focus groups and trying to get emotion out of you. And this is a very important point. When you read things, when you um, hear things and listen to people, take the emotion out of everything and you're a giant step closer to the accurate truth. So... When they give us statistics, for example, uh, when they give us um, numbers of uh, instances happening 
okay, like crimes happening or gun deaths happening in the United States. You know, they always say, well, 30-some 30, 30 thousand people were killed by guns last year. Well, you got to dig into that. 20-some thousand of them was suicide. Eight, ten thousand of them were accident. That just leaves a few murders, and most of those murders by were done by friends and family, people they know. So what I'm saying here is there's a reason to distrust the media. And until they come around and start being concerned with the facts, with objective information, um, we can't trust them. We can't trust them. We have to keep digging until we get to the truth. And then we can attach some emotion to the truth and determine what we want to do with it. Up next, Dr. Lawrence B. Lindsay is going to be joining me. He's the president and CEO of the Lindsay Group and author of a new book, Conspiracies of the Ruling Class. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dr. Lawrence B. Lindsay. He's author of the new book, Conspiracies of the Ruling Class, How to Break Their Grip Forever. He's president and CEO of the Lindsay Group. Previously was an assistant to the president and director of the National Economic Council at the White House. And he served as governor of Federal Reserve System from 91 to 97. He was also served under Bush 1 and Reagan administration. Larry, welcome to An Economy of One. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you uh, taking the time with us today. I forget how I got turned on to your book, but uh, I literally read it in two sittings. I mean, I just couldn't put it down. It's a terrific book. Uh, I want to start with, give us give us your definition of the ruling class. Who, who are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about uh, folks in government. First of all, let me admit that I've served plenty in government, and I would probably you know, qualify as a member of the ruling class. But <laughs> there's a difference between people who, uh, who, who serve and those who really think that they know how to run our lives better than we do. And uh, it's a question, you know, the founding fathers set up the, the government to, um, to serve the people. That's what the Constitution says, the Declaration says. But a lot of folks, when they're there too long, especially, uh, begin to think that they know best, that the government can't run without them, and that we can't run our own lives without them running uh, for us. Uh, they're folks generally who think that um, they're smarter than the rest of us and that they have a more moral vision than the rest of us. And that's pretty much defines the ruling class, now, the state yeah. of mind. Yeah. Now, very early in the book, you talk about three basic tenets of the ruling class, that people can't manage their own lives, that only government can maintain or maintain order. And finally, that members of the ruling class are innately superior. Uh, one of the things that stuck with me, and it was a little later in the book, a couple chapters in or so, uh, you make a statement about credentialing. And this really stuck with me. Can you explain the the, the, the superior attitude they have and how credentialing and, and the term experts plays into all of this. Well, um, really, the, the ruling class got its start um, when the world got a little bit more complicated. And they decided that uh, ordinary people 
you know, just weren't smart enough to comprehend things like uh, an economy or something like that. Right. And right. so they, they, what they said is you need, you need really smart people who have degrees from Harvard or Yale to run things. And uh, that's what credentialing was all about. We went from a, a country in which the Congress made judgments, the representatives of the people made judgments, to where we had a bureaucracy uh, filled with folks who um, had, you know, plenty of degrees, but maybe not enough real-world experience. And that's where they began to increasingly uh, take power um, from uh, elected representatives and put it in the hands of appointed people who, who just happened to spend a lot of time in school. Now, now you point out a lot of statistics, and statistically – progressives as a rule of thumb i guess uh really don't have a, a higher iq and and from my experience they certainly don't have more common sense than the rest of us either do they <laughs> well you know it's interesting i i, I began, when i began researching the book i found lots of articles about how liberals are smarter than conservatives and you know i couldn't imagine how politically incorrect it would be to write an article that said, you know, one group is smarter than the others, but there's lots of out there about liberals being smarter. Um, and, uh, and they think so. And they think that is why they deserve to dominate. Um, you know, why are university campuses dominated by liberals? Well, the answer according to the liberals, is that they're smarter. There aren't enough smart conservatives around to actually put people in as college professors. Right. So uh, that's their attitude, but it turns out it's a lot of hogwash. And, um, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a nice word for it, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> now, you have a constant theme throughout the book, and I think this is what, what really attracted me to it, and, and that is liberty. And what's the real meaning of liberty that our founding fathers had in 1776 uh, and, and how it correlates with natural law compared to what's going on today? Well, they believed that individuals should pretty much be able to do what they thought was best for themselves as long as it didn't interfere with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, the nature of liberty. And not only that, that governments are set up to facilitate our being able to pursue what we think is our own self-interest, our own pursuit of happiness. Um, that is, uh, that's how liberty was set up. That's uh, the basis of it, the basis of the government. And they designed a government to make it very, very hard for a ruling class to take power. Uh, that's why the credentialism you mentioned uh, was so important, because they said, well, you know, all these checks and balances in the government, they just get in the way of running things correctly. Mm -hmm. And so we have, to, uh, we have to move away from having Congress make laws to having a bureaucracy make laws. And that's basically how uh, they managed to stamp on our liberties. One, one of the things that we've heard <clears throat> recent bureaucrats or politicians say and, and in talking about the Constitution is that it's a living document. And you, you went a step further in, in commenting about not only is the Constitution, in their opinion, living, but it's an evolving Constitution. Can you, can you comment on that a little bit and, and why a static Constitution is important to us? Sure. Well, you know, the Constitution is not really that hard to read. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you can, people can sit down, you know, there's a, there's a few ponderous words because it was written uh, 200 uh, odd years ago, but, uh, but basically anyone can understand it. 
But uh, that's not um, the way they like to think about it, because they say that the Constitution really doesn't mean what it says, because it was written in a you know in seventeen uh, in seventeen eighties, and the the world is different today. Mm-hmm. So we need these people called constitutional lawyers to figure out um, what it really says now. When you say it doesn't mean what it says, that you need somebody else to think about uh, what it really means, what you're saying is is that it's not the Constitution. It's not a Constitution at all. It is whatever uh, five out of nine unelected people on the Supreme Court happen to say it is. And just look at what we're going through today. We're going through a tough uh, confirmation uh, uh, battle for one unelected representative, a member of the Supreme Court. Why? Because they have moved so much power from what the Constitution actually says to what the court happens to think it says. And, um, you know, that's, that's quite a reversal of what our founding fathers had in mind. You know, you, you talk a little bit in the book about how progressives control the media, they control entertainment, they control the educational institutions. And you made an interesting point that I never really thought about in that contents and, and why that is. And it boils down to uh, they kind of work as a group or as a collective, and many of us conservatives are, are individuals and, and focus on self-reliance and not part of the group. Uh, will this ever change, or is it the, the nature of the group? Will they have that lock? for a long time? Well, you know, uh, the way I think liberals, the one thing they probably are, quote, smarter than conservatives on is they understand that if they're going to keep power, uh, that they, uh, that what they have to do is work together. And, um, uh, and they do a very effective job of it. I mean, the, the talking points are put out. Everyone recites the talking points. And um, whereas we conservatives tend to have our own minds, and, and that gives them a real advantage. Uh, you know, it's, it's called messaging or repeating the message over and over again. Uh, it's something liberals do very well, but, uh, but not so much conservatives. We'll be back with more from Dr. Lawrence B. Lindsay, author of the book Conspiracies of the Ruling Class. Gary Rathbun, An Economy of One. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're talking with one of the best economic minds in the U.S., Dr. Lawrence Lindsay, author of the new book, Conspiracies of the Ruling Class, How to Break Their Grip Forever. You know, uh, one of the the, uh, economics professors I had 100 years ago made the statement that there's no end to the good do-gooders will do with other people's money. And for, for... all the government talk about reducing poverty and, and helping the middle class and helping the poor, the numbers just don't support those claims out there, do they? No, it's really easy to spend somebody else's money, as your professor uh, uh, said. Um, but and they're spending a lot of it. There's no question about it. Um, right now, uh, $1 uh, in every six 
that is received by people is actually what we call a transfer payment from the government. Uh, It's money that the government sent them uh, because the government thinks that they need the money. That's a a lot of money. It's well over $2 trillion. Now, you'd think for all that money, moving $2 trillion around, we could actually do something about poverty. Mm-hmm. We could do something about inequality. Progressives talk about inequality quite a bit. But actually, um, inequality's gotten worse. It got worse under Barack Obama than it did under George Bush. It got worse under Bill Clinton than it did under Ronald Reagan. And the definitions, by the way, come right from the Census Bureau. The Census Bureau is three measures of poverty. You just look at them all. And Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, uh, despite all the money they spent trying to solve inequality and all the hot air expended talking about inequality, uh, did far worse uh, about uh, making uh, making America more equal society than did their supposedly Republican uh, conservative predecessors. Now, one, one of the outtakes I... I took from the book that I uh, uh, wrote down and will continually use in the future. I promise I'll give you attribution. But uh, uh, you said getting things done is the only way business can survive. But in a bureaucracy, not getting things done is what justifies the institution's existence. They really don't care if they get anything done or not. I mean, they don't really care if they solve the war on poverty or infrastructure or, or anything, do they? I mean, that, that's what keeps them going. Well, you're right. If if you actually solved the problem, then the bureaucracy would go away that was designed for that problem. So the the, the power in the bureaucracy comes in saying no. You know, there's a saying in business, let's get to yes. Mm -hmm. Well, the power in the bureaucracy is in in saying no and blocking something because that's what they're able to do. It's it's just fascinating. And one of the things that that I took out of this, you know, we've talked about term limits for senators and representatives for a long time, but you attack term limits from a little bit different angle uh, that I hadn't really thought about, and that's term limits of these unelected officials that are making the laws, making the rules, enforcing, uh, doing all this kind of stuff, uh, and they really have no no downside. I mean, there's no term limit to that, including, I think you implied, I'm not sure you directly said, including term limits on the Supreme Court. Oh, absolutely. You know, since 1994, we've done a pretty good job of limiting our, our congressmen. Um, average uh, congressman's been there, a member of the House, been there less than six years, uh, less than two terms for an average senator right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but But the rest of these people serve on and on and on. So what I recommend, for example, for the Supreme Court is, you know, how about an 18-year term? Mm-hmm. You know, that's plenty of time to give people political independence. It means one of the justices turnovers turns over every two years. Same thing is true for the bureaucracy. Um, the uh, members of the bureaucracy uh, are almost never able to be fired, mm-hmm. and um, that, uh, that gives them the ability to control things that, uh, that I don't think really is healthy. You know, I, I, let's switch gears for just a little bit because you talk about uh, the Federal Reserve in the book, and obviously you were a, a Federal Reserve governor for a number of years. Um, how has, it seems to me, maybe it's just me being aware a little bit more, but it seems to me like the Federal Reserve has become a more prominent part of 
monetary policy in regards to the economy and the stock market and stuff than it than it was 25, 30, 35 years ago. Has has the role of the Federal Reserve changed in, in recent decades? Um, yeah, I think it has. And um, it used to be that uh, the role of the Fed was uh, to take away the punch bowl before the party really got going. <laughs> uh, that was what uh, former Fed chairman used to say. Uh-huh. Um, but um, starting, uh, frankly, um, when I was there in the 90s, uh, the Fed said, gee, if we can only spike the punch bowl, the party will really get going and, um, and we'll be considered, you know, great party givers. Uh-huh. And that's actually what happened. Um, you know, the, the Chairman Greenspan got known as maestro, for example, because right. – uh, we had a we had a great bubble <laughs> during uh, <laughs> during the nineties. Right. Uh, then we had another bubble, um, again funded by very cheap mortgage money uh, during the last decade. Uh-huh. And during this decade, we're doing it one more time. We're uh, having a huge worldwide credit bubble uh, caused by central banks printing uh, lots and lots of money and keeping interest rates way too low for too long. Um, that's how the Fed does it. If you if you can. You know, if you're the guy with the bottle who can spike the punch bowl, then uh, you're going to control the, the nature of the party. Now, how come? I mean, the the Fed balance sheet has went from, I don't know, five six hundred billion in recent history to like four point three point four four point five trillion. How come we haven't had uh, serious inflation in this country because of that monetary policy? Uh, there, there are a bunch of reasons. Um, one of them uh, that I think is important is that it came along with an enormous increase in regulation. And so a lot of that money uh, is now locked up in the banks. The banks can't lend it uh, because of new regulations on abilities to, to make loans, on the amount of capital that they have to have. And so really uh, the extra money so far is just sitting there um, – uh, making up for the added regulatory burden uh, that has been imposed on them. Uh, that's not going to last forever. And one thing or another is going to have to give. Uh, and I think in the end we're going to, you know, finally decide that, gee, banks are there to, to make prudent loans. Uh, and when we begin to roll back the regulation, then I think the money we risk, the money coming flowing out. Uh, the other pro- possibility uh, is that, you know, when people actually look at the fiscal situation and that you have the, go- the Federal Reserve basically printing the money mm-hmm. in order to keep the government borrowing, that um, uh, markets may decide that, you know, this is not a good long-term situation and may end up, um, you know, losing confidence in uh, the value of the dollar and the prudence of the way we're running things. And if that were to happen, we also have problems. So I I think we'd push the envelope a little bit too far. Okay. We're speaking with Dr. Lawrence B. Lindsay. He's the president and CEO of the Lindsay Group and author of the new book, Conspiracies of the Ruling Class, How to Break Their Grip Forever. I got about uh, a minute or so uh, left with you, Larry. And uh, I want you, you state in the book that the majority of America is pro-liberty, pro-liberty. And there's several things we need to do to gain our liberty back. What are some of the things that we can do, both short-term and long-term, to start reclaiming some of that liberty that we've lost? Well, the most important is vote. And, um, you know, we we still control uh, the government. 
And what we have to do is put in a government that um, uh, recognizes that they work for us, not the other way around, and that uh, when, they, when, when they do that, that we should insist on some real reforms, reforms on um, the power of the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy shouldn't make the laws. The Congress should make the laws. Reforms in how we do budgeting, reforms of the Federal Reserve, so that we just can't print money to get our way out of problems. Um, uh, again, we lay it all out in the book. There's a, a bunch of reforms to, to, to be put in, and I think actually we have a chance. I think the public is fed up. You can see it in the election returns this year, mm-hmm. and um, we'll see if they follow through in November. You know, I, uh, uh, the very first page of your book, even before the table of contents, you quote Thomas Paine saying, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have the consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Uh, the the pro- progressive, uh, have they got us to the point of no return, or is this kind of the darkest before the dawn uh, feeling of, of a new era of liberty, of revolution for us? Um, well, I, I certainly hope it's the latter. You know, uh, I, I wish history were preordained. Uh, then we know what was able to happen, right? It would make investing a lot easier. That's, that's right. Sure. That's right. Uh, um, <laughs> but it's not. And so, um, you know, we're just going to have to keep our fingers crossed on this one. Um, I think that we control our own destinies. That's what the Founding Fathers believed. And that in the end, uh, we are going to triumph. Excellent. Well, uh, Larry, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. It's a terrific book, Conspiracies of the Ruling Class. Uh, Very readable. It's very enjoyable. And, I mean, this is a compliment. Very frustrating in some areas uh, to (laughs) describe what's what's going on. But uh, thank you so much for your time and and being with us today. And uh, we're going to put it up on our website, and and I hope we get the chance to uh, chat again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, Earth Day. I hope you celebrated it like I did. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, this weekend, uh, some people, including me, celebrated Earth Day. Earth Day. Anybody know the history of Earth Day? Earth Day came about in 1970, and uh, it it was uh, uh, kind of put together because of, in 1969, in Santa Barbara, California, there was a big oil spill, and there were images all over of of seabirds with oil on them and poison seals and dolphins, and that was splattered all over TV. And it caused a a uproar from a grassroots level. And about a year later, on April 22nd, 1970, we celebrated the first Earth Day. And uh, soon after, Congress codified um, that and uh, codified the Clean Water Act, in 1972, and the Clean Air Act in 1973, and the Endangered Species Act in 1973. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm all in favor of a clean environment. I'm all in favor of respecting the environment. But I'm not one of these people 
that believe that humans are a parasite or a destroyer of the environment. I mean, we were created by nature, too. We were part of the survival of the fittest group. Earth has been through a lot over the centuries, over the eons, and we're still here. And if we weren't here, that doesn't mean Earth would be in balance and all rainbows and and uh, green and beautiful and that kind of stuff. Doesn't mean it wouldn't be, but most of the mass extinctions that happened over the millennia were the result of natural causes, not humans. So I like taking care of my land. I like respecting it. However, when it comes to Earth Day, just for the heck of it, I always burn something out in my yard. Now, I live on 65 acres out in the country in the middle of nowhere, so I can get away with that. I don't recommend that you go to your backyard and your subdivision and light a tire on fire or anything like that necessarily. But uh, um, I often do. I often burn a tire in, in honor of uh, former Vice President Al Gore uh, just because I know that I'm not hurting anything. The environment is fine. Um and it will continue to be fine. Falls under that same climate change rhetoric. I firmly believe the climate is changing. No question about it in my mind. However, I do have questions that we as humans are causing all the problems. I don't think so. Nature doesn't automatically go into a balance. We are part of nature. Reminds me of an old story of a a minister that was driving down the country road, and he came across this beautiful farm, beautiful, well-trimmed, beautiful trees, horses. And the farmer was out in his pasture looking at his horses, leaning against the fence. So the minister stopped and uh, got out of the car and was talking to the farmer about how beautiful his farm was. And uh, it was just gorgeous. And the minister said, you know, God has truly blessed you on this farm. And the farmer in the attitude and nature of farmers, as I've known them, said, yep, he sure has, but you should have seen this place when he had it all to himself. And that story always reminds me that we are part of nature and our environment is what we make it. Now, I'm old enough to remember 1969 and 1970 when Earth Day was uh, first brought about. And uh, I can't help that to, uh, to think and recall back then that maybe, maybe Earth Day was created to remind most of those people back then what planet they're actually living on. We had a lot of drug use back in the 60s and the 70s, and uh, I think having Earth Day once a a year helped those people remember where they actually are in the universe. Speaking of where we are in the universe, um, President Obama can take credit for something, and I will give him credit for something in the economy, and that is... Over the last year or so, he has created 
over 20,000 jobs in the firearms industry. Firearm sales are so great that the industry, the gun industry, has added 24,763 jobs in the last year. For a nationwide total of 287,986, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. That's up almost 10% year over year. And I can tell you from personal experience, this is due to what most of us think about the government. Every month for the last, I don't know, 9, 10 months has been a record month for background checks for the purchase of firearms. And people are so concerned about their constitutional rights being infringed upon that they tend to buy more weapons. And I do too. I'm one of those. I, uh, in the last eight years of the uh, Obama presidency, um, I can honestly say that uh, probably 10 of those background checks are due to my household. Now, I'm not a gun fanatic. I don't buy a lot of guns to have a lot of guns. Uh, I strategically buy things I want, things in the caliber that I can reload. But every day we see articles, we see states, we see communities that are trying to curb or eliminate your right to own and carry a gun. California is just going nuts out there. They're trying to make it impossible for an FFL dealer to exist in the state of California. And if they get all that legislation through, the dealers will leave. Dealers will leave. And you know what? I don't live in California. Uh, It's a beautiful state. I feel sorry for the people that do live there. But if all the gun dealers leave and they eliminate all the guns and tax all the ammunition out of existence, they're going to get what they get. And uh, I will never say I told you so, but uh, I'm telling you so. That's going to happen to them. They're going to be known not as a a gun-free progressive state. They're going to be known as a victim-rich state. And we will see only the criminals have guns. Most of the murders that occur in this country occur in New York, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. Three of the most strict gun law cities in the United States. And it's no surprise. It's no surprise. 50% of the murders happen in those three cities. So President Obama can chalk one thing up for himself, that uh, he helped create a lot of jobs in a solid industry. May not want to take credit, but it's due to him. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 